You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. IFP has a pretty broad reach of our work, but one of the fundamental principles um, that we do our work from is that public policy should uh, empower rural people. And in addition to focusing on agricultural policy um, and how that affects rural communities, we do have a strain of work that looks at uh, rural policy and rural development policy as a whole and how that is or is not supporting local communities. As part of that work, we, we work with organizations around the country. Today I'm joined by Eric Dixon, who's the coordinator for public policy and community engagement at the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Eric. Good to be here. So you are uh, based in coal country. Obviously, coal is a, a sector that um, has seen a lot of criticism from environmental movements, but in general, just as a, as a source of energy, is clearly declining. Um, and part of your work is to um, make sure that the communities remain vibrant or have access to resources. Talk a bit about what your organization is and what the situation is in coal country. I work at Appalachian Citizens Law Center, and we are a nonprofit law firm that represents coal miners and low-income people throughout central Appalachia on black lung cases, mine safety cases, environmental cases related to extractive industry. And more recently, we do public policy work as it relates to the region and as it relates to transition in Appalachia. So in terms of what the situation looks like right now in the region, you know, coal has gone through a long series of booms and busts over the past century plus. There's been a lot of struggle that's associated with that. Um, There are historically a number of legacy costs that are associated with coal mining extraction and the burning of coal. That's what some of our attorneys work on. Um, Also as part of that history, uh, you know, the jobs that, coal mining have provided for communities throughout Appalachia have been meaningful. And that's also a part of the the story that's important to tell and also have been meaningful for the country in terms of industrialization and powering a lot of the, the work that happened in the region and outside of the region. More recently, we've seen since 2012, a precipitous decline in coal mining and in the coal industry across the country, but especially in central Appalachia. And that has resulted in a lot of uh, economic distress, a lot of mass layoffs throughout very small rural communities in the region, you know, hundreds of people being laid off in very small towns all at once as, as mines have closed down. And that's been a real struggle. I mean, that has been very challenging for uh, communities. And it's challenging to, for example, if you're a young person, Um, you grow up in the region, you care about the place that you call home, and it's often difficult to stay, to find opportunity or work. And so that's a a challenge. How big is the gap between the resources that are available for uh, layoff miners and the resources that are actually needed to support a transition to something else? that's That's a really important and difficult question that I don't, I don't know if anyone has 
a specific figure that they can give you at this point. Mm-hmm. We know it's, it's much bigger than is being provided right now. I mean, that's, that's one thing that we're certain of. There's a few ways that people think about this transition that's happening right now. The decline of the industry is inevitable and communities throughout the region, you know, are embracing that. And that's challenging, but that inevitability is also an opportunity to create something new and to create something better. The transition is inevitable. What's not inevitable is whether it's a just transition. You know, one way to look at it is that we need to replace, you know, we're losing thousands of jobs in the coal mining industry and related sectors, and we need to replace those jobs. A maybe more holistic way to look at it is that we're losing those jobs in the coal and related industries and that is an impetus for us to, to build a new economy that maybe isn't just, just looking at the coal industry and, that's, and its decline, but looking more holistically at how do we build healthy and sustainable communities in central Appalachia. I would assume that your work is about generating support for a just transition from the grassroots or um, supporting the local ideas. But then there's also going to be this outside pressure that we just need to in- attract more international investment in something else. What's the, what's the tension there on the ground with that, with that kind of... Yeah, you're, you're getting at something that is very much a strand of what's happening right now. You know, a big part of the history in the region is, as you just alluded to, outside companies, outside investors owning the land and the companies and being the employers of a lot of the firms or entities in the region and them not being owned by and operated for people who actually live here. And that's something that a lot of people who live here, I mean, if you live here, you, you see that you are very aware of that. And, you know, I don't think that that is, if we're going to build a just future here, that can't be part of the future. That can't be the model. And is, there is a tendency to, for the economic development solution to be very traditional in the sense that, well, let's just recruit some big corporations to come and be employers here. And that cannot be the, the solution here because we've seen time and again when, when the operators don't live here, they don't, and they're not owned by people who live here, then you, you have problems. They're not operated by people who, they're not operated for the benefit of central Appalachians, you know, and in pursuit of a just economy in that way. I'm not saying that, you know, there, there aren't some solutions where it could be, you know, helpful to have, um, you know, a firm create some jobs in the region. Like we should just turn a blind eye to any of those opportunities, but we do need to pretty fundamentally shift the way that we're thinking about development to make it more focused locally on how we utilize the assets that we have here, of which there are many, mm-hmm. to build an economy of local businesses and of opportunities that are, that are based here. Um, talk more about um, the local assets. Um, obviously, the original local asset was that there was a lot of coal in the ground, um, but Appalachia is a lot more complex than that. So what, what, what are some, I guess, maybe the low-hanging fruit there? Well, even before coal mining, there was a long history of agriculture in the region. And that agriculture has looked different than maybe other places in the country because of the geography of the region. 
but there's a history of agriculture that's come roaring back with a strong local foods movement that wasn't here five or 10 years ago. People see that as a part, a piece of the puzzle of the future in Appalachia. We have a very rich musical heritage as well. And that I think has to be part of the assets that we build on. In, in Southwest Virginia, there is a, um, a trail that's associated with like country and bluegrass and old time music heritage. So that's an example of an opportunity. Also, the, the landscape is beautiful. I mean, it is just, it's a huge secret that is kept um, in terms of how beautiful the region is. And recreational tourism can, can't be the only solution and it has to be done responsibly, but that also is an opportunity for what the, what the next economy could look like. So I think, you know, a fundamental part of how we move forward is the, that the economy has to be diverse. We do not want another mono economy in central Appalachia. Um, so we need to build on the variety of aspect, as, assets that we have in the region. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on how doing that generates wealth in the community that's, I guess, on a similar scale to coal mining. Um, you know, what we found with a lot of retraining programs through things like the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, because it's relative to IFP, is that people would get the funding, they do the retraining, and then there would just be a glut because there were too many HVAC technicians now because they had all got retraining as HVAC technicians. To, to what extent are people able to engage with some of the opportunities that might be out there if they are retraining? There are a number of retraining programs that have been ongoing for a few years. There are a number that are very new. Those retraining programs have to be tied with the build out of opportunities for entrepreneurs and employment opportunities. We can't just focus just on retraining. It's, it's a collective action problem in a way because we need all these different actors, whether they be people, employers, whether they are, you know, maybe a coal miner who wants to transfer to something else, um, but doesn't know if there's a job at the end of that retraining program for them. Um, or doesn't know if there's a retraining program at the end of, uh, you know, being let off from the mines. And all of those actors are kind of looking at each other like, well, are you going to be there when I'm like out at the end of my rope? And we need, we need more. It's a collective action pro problem in that we need all of those actors at the same table so that we sort of are engendering trust between each other. And we know that you're going to be there when I, you know, that the employees are going to be there when the retraining programs finish and that, that kind of problem. One piece that we're, that we're not quite at yet or uh, that, we, that we, we still really need to be building towards is this a larger holistic commitment from the federal government and from state and local government to come around a coordinated plan for how we're going to transition the economy in Appalachia in a just way. And there, like I said, there, there's some great piecemeal stuff that's happening. We should talk about that. But, but what I mean about this holistic, comprehensive approach is the following. We have a lot of coal miners and former coal miners, for example, that we work with at ACLC that I believe are interested in other economic opportunities. It's, it's not that people are just blindly interested in coal mining here because you know, it's, it's all they've ever known. It's because they see that as their sole opportunity for gainful employment. 
And I truly believe that if there were a viable alternative that people in this region saw before them that was really backed up with, by government provisions and by you know, employers and that kind of thing, then people would embrace that. I truly think that they would embrace that, but we haven't seen the leadership on that level yet. Why, why do you think there hasn't been that leadership? It's, it's just a huge undertaking that requires first imagining that something can be different here, which itself is difficult, and why it's important that like arts and culture and media organizations are engaged in this effort too, because we have to imagine that something is, is possible and different here. And then we have to demand that our politicians take leadership on that. And we have to be realistic about the hard changes that will be required in terms of changing the power structure in the region so that it actually benefits people here. And those are all really hard things that take a long time. It sounds like you're working on that. Um, but so you had alluded to that there are some positive signs of, of things that are happening and, and that maybe you are starting to see movement towards that uh, just transition. Um, uh, tell me about what's happening in there. Starting in 2012, in, in the ensuing years, there was really an uptick in interest in central Appalachia around diversifying the economy. And this was brought on by, you know, the precipitous decline of coal that, that we talked about earlier. That conversation has opened up a lot of policy ideas and a lot of interest in new things. And though some of those ideas that originated in coal-packed communities have now been implemented at the federal level. In 2015, we saw for the first time, the federal government propose a federal program to assist communities, fossil fuel communities, in transitioning away from the decline of their fossil fuel, which is something that I think we're going to have to see a lot more of over the next 50 to 100 years. That proposal was called the Power Plus Plan, and it included a number of things to assist coal communities in diversifying their economies. A number of those things have since become law, have since become funded, and some of them we're still working on. So one of the things that has, that has been funded is called the Power Initiative. The Power Initiative is a set of investments across a number of agencies, especially the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is a regional development agency, and the Economic Development Administration, which have basically made investments, grants, in community and economic development projects to help diversify the economy in struggling communities throughout the region and throughout other coal communities in America that aren't in Appalachia. And that first was funded in 2016. It was funded again the next year. It looks like it'll be funded uh, again in this bill that Congress is considering right now. And it's been funded upwards of $50 million per year. So that's significant. It is also significantly lower than what we need to transition a huge regional economy away from what it has historically relied on. But there are exciting projects that are, that are happening there in a number of the, the sectors that I mentioned to you earlier. All right, so what, what else is needed on a public policy level that would really help make this transition um, more of a reality? 
Another initiative that really started at the grassroots level a few years ago in the region and continues to be a priority among advocates in the region, local elected officials, is the Reclaim Act. And the, the Reclaim Act is a federal piece of legislation in Congress that would take $1 billion from an existing trust fund in D.C. This is a billion dollars that was collected actually from the coal industry over the past 40 years. The idea is to take this $1 billion and deliver it to coal impacted communities across the country to actually employ people reclaiming abandoned coal mines and to spur economic and community development projects on those lands and, and, and waters that have been impacted by those abandoned coal mines. This is a really exciting idea because a lot of people throughout the region have the earth moving skills to do reclamation work. It's a very easily transferable sector for a number of people who work here, including coal miners. So it's, it's an immediate shot in the arm economically to, you know, put people to work reclaiming coal mines. There are big environmental and public health benefits because we're cleaning up these sites and it helps us develop new sites for a diverse economy in the future. So that's one thing that a lot of people are focused on in the region right now. And we hope that Congress will make a priority and, and, and make law. Um, one thing, you know, that we found at IATP through our, our rural climate dialogues is that if, if some of that policy is uh, dictated from the top down, from the federal government or from the state, uh, there can be resistance. Um, and, and part of that is, uh, I, I think, deeper, you know, rooted in kind of rural culture of not uh, wanting to have outsiders dictating to you how you should live your life which I think is justifiable. I don't think anyone wants that. Um, but you had also said that some of these good policy ideas had actually come from the communities themselves. Um, so with the, uh, the power initiative, for example, what's the balance there of ideas being generated from the community um, versus ideas kind of being um, brought in from the outside? In my opinion, the best part of this story happened in 2015 when I believe it was 29 local governments and representative bodies throughout four central Appalachian states, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, and Tennessee. So 20 local governments throughout those states passed resolutions at the local level saying, we're struggling, but we have assets here. We want to build a new future here. And hey, Congress, you should pass these initiatives. And that was before the power initiative was funded for the first time. So I think that process that happened um, was important in terms of the conversation that happened locally. It was important because it has been rooted in, you know, a local grassroots push that started here as opposed to something that was just cooked up in like a policy paper in the beltway. Um, and I don't think that, you know, these programs are perfect. Um, and, and, one, and one also part of this is that these investment opportunities are just open applications. Like if you want to put an application in for your idea for a project, you can do that. There are some matching requirements for some of them that are difficult. There's also just because of the history, the economic history of the region, 
a lot of the communities that need investment the most or need resources to build up their own locally driven ideas, they just are struggling to survive. And they don't have the capacity to be thinking about the innovative idea that they want to have in their local downtown. So that's a very difficult problem that has not been solved yet. Um, but we, we, I think we need to continue the investments that we are making and we need to be very mindful of the fact that, that's a, that there are challenges with some communities being able to apply or having the capacity to apply and trying to support those as much as we can. I want to talk a bit about renewable energy. To what extent is the energy transition part of the economic transition in Appalachia? You know, part of the transition from fossil fuels to a clean energy economy, part of that transition being inevitable, but not necessarily being inevitably just, is that, you know, I think, I think most experts agree we're going to see a huge build out even more than we've seen of clean energy across the U.S., what is a big question mark is whether rural communities and whether like places, coal communities, former coal communities in Appalachia will see that build out. Will we see the jobs that, that come with clean energy? I don't want to give the impression that there isn't any clean energy in the region because there is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I don't, I don't want to paint a picture that we don't have any exciting things related to re- renewable energy going because we do. I actually, I grew up in East Tennessee and my first job out of school was for a solar company in East Tennessee before I moved to East Kentucky. So there, there are some opportunities, there's stuff happening, but I mean, it's definitely reality that as a region, we are lagging the rest of the country and we need leadership regionally around that. We also need leadership among the clean energy executives and among the clean energy advocates to be very mindful of intentionally making decisions about how this, who this clean energy economy benefits and making sure that there are just economy conclusions that we can draw at the end of that build out. And then the last thing I'll say about it is in terms of particular opportunities that I'm excited about, you know, reclaimed strip mines, coal mines or mountaintop removal sites are really great opportunities for solar and wind. For solar, because there's good solar exposure, they're usually in higher in elevation and they don't have much, you know, many, much foliage because of the coal mining that happened there. We've seen solar and wind projects on these kinds of sites, and there's a lot of opportunity for more of those. And hopefully, there's, there's also a lot of interest in doing that. So hopefully over the next few years, we'll see a lot more of those develop. What's the most just way that you can ensure that some of those displaced communities have access to that investment or how do you leverage the programs that are funded to make sure that the benefits of of some of these investment opportunities are felt within the communities? If you're someone who's trying to do this in the region, trying to be, play your role in building the new economy here, I think we need to be very intentional about making sure that the new businesses that we create and organizations that we create are owned by the workers and by people who live in the local community or have a community ownership model. If it's like a, if it's like a solar project or a wind project, I think that's very important is the ownership model because if the power structure doesn't change, then we could have some, for example, environmental environmental benefits down the road, 
But again, where will the economic benefits go? Will they continue to just suck money out of the region? And if you're someone who's not living in the region, but you want to play your role in, in, in this, I think it's just important to be, to support the local efforts that are happening in the region, to see just transition as part of climate justice. I mean, you cannot have one with, without the other. Um, I think we have a moral responsibility to ensure that we see a just transition in not only coal communities, but other communities that are being impacted by the transition away from fossil fuels and by the impacts from climate change. Um, so I think we have to see those as, as inextricably linked and to support local efforts and let those local folks lead in the pursuit of that just transition, which by the way, isn't just about an energy transition, but also is about a transition that is about economic justice and racial justice and gender justice. Those are all conversations that are happening in the region as well that I think are important to lift up and, and tell us as part of the story here. Well, Eric, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, really, really great to be with y'all. Eric Dixon is the coordinator for public policy and engagement at the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I want to thank Andrew Arisso, our podcast intern, who is editing this episode. For more information about what you've heard on the podcast, including uh, the website for the Rural Climate Dialogues and Rural Climate Network, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. Thanks for listening.